Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris, and you can go to the website BibleProphecyTalk.com to get all the links and contact information, etc. Today I want to answer a few uh, listener questions about Bible prophecy. I want to go over some notes about current events and some other things. Uh, first, we'll hit a few show notes. I want to talk about the Bible Prophecy Archive, which I announced in the last podcast. That's where we have curated audio and video and text and audiobooks and all kinds of stuff into an 18 gigabyte file that's meant to hopefully preserve this for the future. I went and checked the links just before this podcast at BibleProphecyArchive.com. There's two mirrored links that host this 18 gigabyte file. There used to be three, now there's two, long story but they're quoting like 12 to 14 hours per download. So I know people are out there trying to download it. Uh, just be patient with it. And hopefully I can think of a better way to host that large file that would be more consistent for people to download. But check it out, BibleProphecyArchive.com. I also wanted to mention that I've been working on a project for almost two years that has to do with an FM transmitter. And I've kind of come to a place where I just can't go any further uh, some of the prototyping and stuff that I was doing, just it, you know, it got to a place where I don't know what to do anymore. <laughs> um, but I've got some ideas and I think, but I just need somebody that maybe knows a little bit about circuit boards, somebody that maybe knows a little bit about FM transmitters are probably one and the same to some, some degree. But if you do, if you do, uh, know about that stuff and you want to help, I can pay as well. Uh, give me a uh, email. Uh, you can email me at chriswhite 79 at protonmail.com. Also, I hope to get to the next Bible prophecy timeline video slash podcast this week. Um, I have done some preliminary research. The subject is apostasy and the end times apostasy. And, you know, it's a, it's a difficult subject, so I want to try to be thoughtful about it. So be patient with that, but I hopefully should get to it this week. Also in this past week, I made a video about the COVID-19 protocols for early treatment, like what uh, the, the so-called McCullough protocol, Dr. Peter McCullough and the FLCCC protocol, uh, Pierre Corey and the uh, frontline uh, critical care doctors and all those guys, which are basically the same protocols, like what drugs to take and what amounts and all what, whatever, but they're basically the same with some minor differences. Anyway, in this video, I, I honestly just did it for friends and family, but uh, if you want to see the link, I'll put that in the uh, uh, description of this podcast as well, which you should be able to see on your podcatcher iTunes app or whatever. I'll try to make it the first link here if you want to check it out. But basically, it just goes over what COVID-19 is, how it uh, acts in the body, and why uh, early treatment is so important. And then I go over the different protocols and uh, sort of explain them in depth. So very data-driven, lots of peer-reviewed papers on the screen and stuff like that. So yeah, check it out at that website or in the show notes of this episode at BibleProphecyTalk.com. All right, I wanted to start off with a couple Bible prophecy-related questions. These were sent in by the same person who is doing a Bible study based on some of the videos, I think the timeline videos. And so some questions are coming up and I wanna address them for that reason as well. He says, do the 10 nations have to be right around Israel and the Mediterranean Sea? Isn't that more of a Middle East thing? What will happen to the world powers like US, China, Russia, etc.? Maybe that time is farther off when the balance of power changes. First off, I would say that that last part, I feel the more I think about this, that that's true, that I wouldn't be surprised if the, the geopolitical landscape 
changes so dramatically that there really are 10 kings ruling the, the world at that time, not presidents, not nations, 10 kings. I wouldn't be surprised if that's where we're at. And that could develop, you know, sooner than later. But I'm just saying it's different. Something big happens is my read on that uh, between now and then. Um, and I also make the point in that uh, podcast that uh, that that 10 nation thing must come before the Antichrist. I think Daniel 7 makes that an explicit I don't hesitate to use the word doctrine, but I think that, that you can hang your hat on that idea that the 10 nation thing must be in place before the Antichrist uh, comes on the scene. But to answer the question, I would say it is not necessary for the 10 kings to be, you know, very Middle East centric. I suppose that they could be, you know, the whole world could be divided into 10 parts or maybe uh, Russia and China are, are irrelevant and America is irrelevant at that time. I don't know. Any one of those things are possible. And the reason it's possible is because I don't think it's explicit. Even my idea about the 10 nations being very similar in, in construction, if you will, to Rome, at the very least, I believe that they must control the entire Mediterranean border. And the reason I say that is not just because Daniel 7 says that they come out of the Great Sea, a term only used for the Mediterranean Sea, and not because the progression of the other of those seven heads are very easy to track on a map. You know, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, look at their, their empires, what they were, and they just kept progressively growing bigger and bigger and bigger uh, from Babylon to Rome, in which Rome was the first and only nation to ever control all of the Mediterranean Sea. And I think it passed its prologue. And because of the language in Daniel 7, which makes much of that conquest of land concept in almost in a, in a marvel sort of way. And this is, I think, distinct from uh, his conquest later in, in Daniel 11, etc. But my point is, I think that you can make a case for it, but you cannot prove it, I don't think. And there may be something else I'm missing out there, but I don't think I can prove it. But it is a pet theory of mine that it will be limited, much like the landmass of Rome is. Not exactly, but similar. That's my guess, based, uh, educated guess, we'll call it. But it can be, I think, anything. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's anything. So keep our eyes open with regard to where they are. Um, I do think it's good to have, you know, a, a best guess, though, so you can sort of sharpen your focus on a given area. One thing I do think you can be more sure of with regard to the Ten Nations and their their control or their uh, area is the control of Israel, I think is, if past is prologue, I think that's the, the single unifying link between all of the seven heads of the beast, which are described as essentially attempts at Satan to control the wor world through empires. And each one of those were empires I think that the reason they're a part of that is because of that control of Israel. Israel was not the master of its domain when those empires took over. In between those empires, they would have their own, you know, things going and were not subject to them. Uh, but so that's, I think, the main thing. So if past this prologue, then the Ten Nations version of that head will also control Israel, which uh, it flies in the face of a lot of uh, conventional wisdom, especially the sort of you know, the people that say that uh, 1947 or 1948 or 67 was the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37, that the dry bones and, you know, they'll say things like, you know, it, it started to, 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 you know, the bones started getting put together, but they haven't been put on flesh yet because it's so messianic and it is so Holy Spirit, you know, driven. Anyway, I go through that in actually the Gog Magog um, 
video and, and podcast, you can look up, I think, the section about uh, uh, context. Gog, Magog, I don't know what part, but context was the name of the episode in which I go through a deep dive uh, on that question as whether or not uh, it can be said that the independence of Israel in, in modern times can be equated with Ezekiel 37 and the dry bones prophecy. And I come down on that issue and say, no, it can't be. It, it, it can't be in part either. And I think that we have a, an explicit biblical uh, proof, or very close to explicit here, that Israel loses the scepter yet one more time. And that, the reason I'm mentioning this is that if you believe that it was fulfilled in 37, as a part of that prophecy, if that's really what it was, it started then and it will finish later, then they can't lose it again. That's an explicit fundamental uh, uh, promise with regard to that salvation of Israel moment. And uh, so if, if that's true, then you have to wonder, well, how's this 10 nation thing going to work? You have to also believe that Israel will be independent while that 10 nation thing exists, which I don't think is true. And it also sort of <clears throat> makes sense if the Antichrist comes on the scene as a savior and Israel, again, is controlled by an oppressive, uh, that was me, by the way, uh, controlled by an oppressive uh, a nation that's, that's got, you know, it's not the master of its own destiny. And that, that that empire ends with the Antichrist essentially defeating three of the ten heads and apparently gaining enough independence to start the daily sacrifices at the beginning of the 70th week. Okay, moving on. Okay, his next question is about the idea that the Antichrist presents himself as the Jewish Messiah, and he says that it seems like it could be a contradiction or it could be interpreted differently, and he's speaking of Luke 21, 20 through 24, and Revelation 13, 6. He says, the scripture does seem to indicate the Antichrist will appear as Messiah for the Jews, but these verses sound like he's making war with them. The context seems early on in the seven years, not the latter half. All right, let's first talk about the Luke 20 through 24 passage, and I'll just read it here. It says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out of the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. All right, I want to answer this question in a general way and then a specific way. The general thing I want to get across first is that this passage in Luke 21 is a part of the Olivet Discourse, the end times teaching of the Lord, the longest sermon on the end times that the Lord gave. Um, and it's recorded here in Luke 21. It's recorded in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. And they're all saying pretty much the same thing, but there is slightly different emphasis. In Mark 13 and, and, and Matthew 24, it's real clear that the, the uh, eschatological end times is in view. It's real clear about that. And if you're trying to argue, you know who preterists are, you know, these are the people that believe that all prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD when Rome destroyed the temple in, uh, in Jerusalem with Titus. And they say, oh, th this was all about Titus, you know, and that's what preterists basically do. And they want to talk about Luke 21. When they, when they want to argue their point, they'll always go to Luke 21. And the, on the other side, the futurists are always trying to say, hey, but look at here in Mark, Mark 13 and Matthew 24. 
And there's no contradiction there. It's something that I think I really began to understand when studying Daniel, especially this last time with Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, is that there is this 4D chess thing going on with the Bible, where the same text in the same passage in Daniel is applying to so much near-term stuff that hasn't happened yet. You know, Daniel predicted not just the rise and fall of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. I mean, he saw it all and had multiple prophecies about stuff that hadn't, hadn't happened yet. You know, even stuff like Nehemiah going and rebuilding the wall. Daniel's predicting this and we take it for granted. We have the book of Nehemiah, but that was prophecy by Daniel, you know? So part of Daniel needs to be relevant for the group of people. Nehemiah, who was reading Daniel, you know, or whatever, it needs to be relevant for those people. And I think Luke 21 is a really good example of this because it is definitely mostly for the near-term uh, believers that would see these events be fulfilled because this is critical information that saved untold numbers of lives, I'm quite sure. Uh, that is to say, Luke 21, verses 20 through 24. Um, but it does this very near-term goal. It accomplishes this near-term goal while not compromising one bit the eschatological meaning, but in much in the same way with Daniel 2, you've got to squint a little harder to see the eschatolo eschatology because it is so focused on that near-term concept of an army literally surrounding Jerusalem uh, with Titus, which laid siege to Jerusalem to wait them out, starve them out, but eventually destroyed the whole thing. So Luke 20 through 24 is exactly what they needed to know. They needed to know, A, that when they see Jerusalem being besieged to fulfill Jesus's words 30 years before that not one stone would be left uh, on the temple, um, that they need to leave. They don't need to think that, hey, this is going to go well. We're, we're, we have an explicit teaching here that says, let's get out of the city. Let's not even wait. When this siege gets laid, let's go. And of course, anybody that didn't do that would have been killed later on. So it saved probably an entire generation of Christians that were living in Jerusalem for that first 30 years and maybe began, began the greatest uh, uh, evangelism campaign of all time that we're both probably all spiritually uh, uh, descended from. In any case, um, this idea of the Jerusalem surrounded by armies, which only appears here in Luke, is a concept that is fulfilled with the Antichrist too, as we see in uh, uh, Daniel 11. Because in Daniel 11, right at the end of that chapter, it says that um, he will plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. And as I've discussed many times, that is in context, him having just taken his armies all throughout the Middle East and destroyed all the enemies of Israel, uh, Egypt, for example, is completely crushed. I think that the uh, uh, the king of the north, i.e. Assyria, uh, modern day, uh, you know, all these Muslim countries are completely destroyed. These, these countries in the east that are unnamed. But specifically, he goes into the glorious land and people say, aha, there he goes. He goes into the glorious land. Yes, but what is he doing in the glorious land? He's chasing Edom, Moab, and Ammon, who escape from his hands, but he is trying to get them, but they escape. Uh, and they, they are completely historical, biblical enemies of Israel. So I think the only thing you can prove that the Antichrist is doing with his armies is defeating the enemies of Israel. And then it does, it says what we were talking about. He plants the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, i.e. in Jerusalem. And it seems like he's doing this 
uh, well, we don't really know. It doesn't have a lot of information about why he does this, except for that's when he comes to his end with none to help him. And I go through in that timeline series about how you can uh, chart all this out, essentially from a timeline perspective, and see that this is just before the midpoint, which I think the next line in uh, Daniel, Daniel 12, 1, makes crystal clear. At that time, Michael, uh, who stands watching for your people, will stand up and there should be a time of trouble, such as never been since the beginning of the world, etc. The same line that Jesus quotes later in the Olivet Discourse. So my point is that he does, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that's an Antichrist thing too. But in the Antichrist version, I think he does it in the terms of victory as exactly what you would, what everybody expects the Messiah to do, what they expected Jesus to do, get an army and go destroy the enemies of Israel. And so I think that this setup of his armies right before he is killed, and then I would submit resurrected from the dead, and that's when he sits in the temple and declares himself to be God. So the same words, Jeru uh, Jerusalem surrounded by armies, is true in both Titus and the Antichrist explicitly with biblical uh, proof. But when you look at Mark 13 and Matthew 24's account of this, you don't see anything about warlike aggression against Israel from the Antichrist. What you see is warnings about deception of loving him. You, what you see is plead after plead that you don't fall for this. And many will fall for the false Christ and the false prophets. Many will go out looking for him in the desert, but don't do it. He says his return will be like lightning shining from the east to the west. You won't miss it. It won't be some secret thing in the desert. Also, this idea of trampling the holy city has a dual fulfillment, a near and far fulfillment. This is another one which is not mentioned in any of the others, Mark 13 or Matthew 24. The near fulfillment, I think, is pretty clear with regard to Titus in 70 AD. Uh, you know, Gentiles trampling the city, a very aggressive situation. Obviously, they completely conquered the city. Um, with the Antichrist, I think it's a little bit different. And we can look at Revelation 11. And here we again see this phrase about trampling the holy city, in this case, for 42 months. So now we know that the trampling, um, that there is a end times trampling as well as a, a, a uh, early trampling with Titus. There's an end times trampling as well because of Revelation 11. So we read Revelation 11. It says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. What we have here, the nations of the Gentiles, they are given a portion of this temple where people are worshiping. What I'm trying to say here is that the trampling of the city here is clearly different than a rampaging Antichrist coming in and just knocking over the temple. I hate Jews. I hate temples. I'm going to trample the holy city. Well, why is there a temple of God and worship there? And these Gentiles are given a section of this temple to worship, presumably, as well. I don't know what else. They, they're given a, a section of the temple for, which, of course, has precedent because of the, the court of the Gentiles, you know, the converts to Judaism in, in the old days. They, had, they have a court of the Gentiles in, in, in ancient times, and apparently they will in this future time as well. And remember, there are two essentially two phases of sacrifice and worship at the temple in the end times. The first uh, phase is starts at the, at the beginning of the seven-year period, which is starts the daily sacrifices. I interpret that probably as for three years, daily sacrifices are happening in Jerusalem. It's probably seen as a great victory for Jerusalem, who finally has 
whatever the answer that they're looking for to not start World War III with their, their neighbors because they can finally start the sacrifices again. So that's happening there, the people that are worshiping there. But we also have a second uh, stage of the temple worship. When the Antichrist sits in it, declares himself to be God, the false prophet creates the image of the beast who forces everyone in the world, everyone in the world has to worship the image of the beast or be killed. And, you know, we can come up with ideas about maybe it's uh, some, you know, lights in the sky or something that, you know, they can worship it wherever they are and whatever island or whatever. But the, again, past his prologue, also what we know will happen in the super end times in the millennial or whatever millennium is that there really will be a pilgrimage. People have to come from far, far away, everywhere that they are to worship Jesus in the temple in the millennium. Like they, they can't do it remotely. They have to go, go in to worship in the millennium. And so it's my hypothesis that that's what the Antichrist is trying to do with this worship in the temple. And it's no surprise that we see in Revelation 17 and 18, the uh, chapters about Mystery Babylon, which I wrote a book about, that if you take that line by line and you look at it all, it's basically talking about a massive pilgrimage system to worship, in this case, a false god, the biggest and baddest of false gods, Satan himself, through probably the the power behind the image of the beast and the and the Antichrist concept. So, and Israel and Jerusalem is pictured as this harlot high priest riding uh, the Antichrist. She thinks she's found her king, and I am uh, no longer a widow. She thinks she found her husband and her king when, in fact, she is destroyed by him later. So that's an important part of this, that later on in this whole saga, she is eventually killed by the ten kings or burned with fire. And there's a whole thing that happens much, much later, much more towards, uh, it seems to me, towards Armageddon. But even that, that last half of the three and a half years, most of that is considered the pilgrimage uh, where the people of the world have to come to worship the Antichrist. So what I'm saying is that the trampling of the city in Revelation 11 has to do with the worship of the temple. They're trampling with regard to worship. They're trampling the court of the Gentiles. It's, it's trampling, yes, by the Gentiles, yes, but in Jerusalem, yes, but it's trampling in the sense that the whole world is forced to go there to worship a false god. He also mentions Revelation 13, verse 6, which says, speaking of the Antichrist, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. So the idea here is that if the Antichrist is claiming to be Messiah, and I would argue and do argue in that uh, uh, podcast about the abomination of desolation in the timeline series, that he not only claims to be the Messiah, he's claiming to be God himself. He's claiming to be Yahweh, and I'm sure it's a perverted version of it, but that's ultimately his message. So I'm claiming, yes, that is blasphemy against God. It is blasphemy, certainly. I think that's where people are getting hung up on that, that word against. Is it blasphemy against God? When you claim to be God, but are not, remember they, uh, they argued that Jesus committed blasphemy. And the only reason that their argument is that he can't, he's not God. So therefore these claims where he's making it sound like he's God are blasphemy. So I don't think that there's a problem with that, but I did want to clarify. And I should say in that, in that podcast where I go over that in detail, I especially talk about second Thessalonians two, where Paul, I believe is interpreting Jesus's statements about the abomination of desolation with the Antichrist in the Olivet Discourse, you know, uh, Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand. I think that 
Paul, the reader really did understand. And he went and read the multiple references to the abomination of desolation in Daniel, because there are multiple times that Daniel speaks of that. It's a central concept in Daniel. And it's a lot like we saw with the other things in Daniel too, where there is a near and far fulfillment of the, of the abomination of desolation. Remember, Antiochus Epiphanes was way yet future in Daniel's day. So Daniel needed to be relevant for those that Maccabean world, that intertestamental time when, uh, anyway, I'm getting off the subject here. But my point is that Paul understood all that. And this is what we get in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, where it says, speaking of the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So my emphasis sort of helps, I think, you know, to get my point across there. But in that podcast, I actually went through and looked at these phrases, so-called God and object of worship. And you can see exactly what Paul thinks he means by those verses, which is speaking of very rare words, speaking of in, in the Greek gods in the cases of uh, uh, so-called God or, or objects of worship, rather. So my point is that the Antichrist being described as blaspheming God need not be anything else except for what Paul thinks, a guy sitting in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. That's blasphemy against God to do that. But the reason I was glad to get this question again is because I wanted to put an addendum to that video about the abomination of desolation when I went through all that stuff. And to say basically that I don't know what the Antichrist will claim exactly about with his theology, what him and the false prophet are going to be teaching people about who he is and how that relates to the Messiah and God. And I think that the, the main picture is pretty settled that he will claim to be the Messiah and he's going to claim to be Yahweh in some sense. But based on, you know, the, the things that Satan has cooked up before, and if you've ever had any, you know, uh, contact with people, cults and different things that Satan has been behind, you know that he's a clever guy, clever angel, and he is going to think up of something very clever. And I'm sure that it will be a kind of false version of it that will also be blasphemy against God while saying, you know, that he is God in the same way. It's kind of like the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, their version of theology is blasphemy to me, but to them, they think it's true Christianity. Just a guy sitting in the temple declaring himself to be God is blasphemy against God. Okay. So that took a little bit longer than I was thinking. So I'll try to go through the rest of this fairly quickly. Mostly what I wanted to talk about from my notes was this idea of the great COVID robbery. I have started to think about COVID more than anything else as a big robbery. And from a public policy standpoint, everything that they did functioned to steal everything eventually from anybody but the, but the wealthy. And it will certainly weaken whoever is in between those two gulfs of super poor and super rich. And eventually, I think it'll take away that middle ground as well. So if you think about public policy, what did they do? I mean, the lockdowns chiefly ran so many people out of business. I mean, think about it. You just, how much of that was untenable for most people, right? They had to close down their businesses, especially if you're in a state or a country that is one of these crazy lockdown places. How could you possibly consider staying in business with, if your business was in anything to do with I mean, any number of things that existed before that don't exist now. So they just wiped out a ton of middle class with that one, right? But also it hurts the lower class because they worked at those places. 
But then the vaccine mandates did the same thing, right? So the vaccine mandates chased everybody out of their jobs. It gave them, from a public policy standpoint, the go-ahead to have Christmas every day with the printing of money all around the world, not just the Federal Reserve, all the central banks, just printed and printed and printed and printed. And in the short term, whoever gets that money from these massive bills, and I mean, I mean, it just basically filled up all the pockets of everyone within like a whatever mile of radius of Washington, D.C. and similar things across the world. It fills their pockets up and they immediately go buy real assets. They buy the farmlands and the houses and everything else. So for them, printing money is a real thing that works. But the problem with printing money is that it steals all that purchasing power from everybody else. And so we're starting to see inflation start, but that's we ain't seen nothing yet in terms of what is about to happen to the markets and everything else. I mean, it's going to steal everybody's money. And it was all a public policy decision. And why is that important? Brown shirts. It's important for brown shirts. Brown shirts are the foot soldiers in World War II that uh, were just known as just evil people. They would do anything. And they were totally devoted to Hitler. And they would just go rough people up, his political opponents in the early days. It was so much a part of his story early on is to have these brown shirts just willing to go beat somebody up to get whatever they wanted, some political hall, you know, thing or whatever. But you can't get brown shirts in this, in a true, what we're, I think we're going into totalitarianism. It needs brown shirts. If you look at like Stalin's Russia, what could it have ever been without the Stasi or whatever their secret police were that just went around and, and tor you know, tormented everybody and were the prison guards and the torturers and all that whole class of people. They were all Russians. So how do you get them? Because we can't get there. Um, you can't, I mean, I'm sure there are some Americans, you know, Antifa or whatever that would gladly do that, but you're going to need a whole lot more than whoever is calling themselves Antifa. And I bet you can't get mo most of those people to do the kind of things you need, uh, foot soldiers to do in a true totalitarian system. So how do you get there? Make everyone poor, so poor, so, so poor. And if you look at, uh, Germany, I mean, the whole point of World War One, the sanctions and the Treaty of Versailles and everything, it made everything just deplorable in Germany post-World War One. I. I mean, starvation, rampant. I mean, and then you think in that context, you know, these brown shirts, getting a job was like the best thing. Getting a, a paying job, that's what the Stasi were doing. They were the only people in town with a job, basically. Working for the government and uh, the police force. And plus you get all this fear and respect. And so if you already have pro proclivities towards any of those things, but you still need the cover of, of it being, uh, you know, poor and I got to do this to save my family. And, and when those stakes are actually real, the people that have that job have money to eat and the people that don't have that job don't, then not only do you find people signing up for that job, but you, you construct it in such a way that the people that have those proclivities anyway, uh, nascent and, as they may be, uh, can be uh, uh, nurtured and, and made to be more evil and make them enjoy, the uh, in a sadistic way, that kind of work. I was also thinking that an intended consequence of the vaccine mandates uh, probably was to flush out all the unvaccinated, right? And I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that unvaccinated people are mostly Christians or mostly good people or whatever. 
Uh, I think there's plenty of good people and smart people who got the vaccine that for various reasons uh, didn't want to research it. And of course, I could be completely wrong with the whole thing. But my point is only to say that I would say that a large part of the people that didn't get the vaccine were, as some of those studies have suggested, smart people, really smart people, and really good Christians and kind of the people that that serve to make organizations better, the smart people, the, the people that are have true integrity and that kind of stuff. I'm not saying the people that are left don't have integrity or whatever, and they've got their reasons and all this other stuff. But the, the function of that is that you probably don't have a lot of Christians left in some of these organizations in the hospitals. And they, I think that the salt, the preservation of decay, that we're supposed to be salt and light. Well, the salt aspect of that is that when we're in a situation like that, we, by our nature of being there, prevent it from becoming more evil around us. I think that we do have a salt-like characteristic and that just by our being Christians in those situations, we prevent decay, i.e. evil and and uh, debauchery or whatever, I don't know, maybe not, in those, in those circles. And I think by taking us in mass out of those situations, it's going to accelerate a lot of the evil things that some of these organizations do. I think, for example, a lot of corporations, which probably are 100% vaccinated now, and they've gotten rid of all those pesky little go goody two-shoes guys, right? They outed them, got them to leave. What I'm saying is that it's going to accelerate the, the evil things that they will do in those, com in those com companies because they no longer have any salt in them or very little salt. I'm, again, I'm not saying to all the Christians left or anything like that or that you have to be uh, unvaccinated to be a true Christian or anything like that. Speaking of vaccines, the narrative with regard to the vaccines and COVID in general seems to have significantly changed. And I would say I noticed this maybe a week or a little bit more than that ago where there were some undeniable things that were happening that were like, hey, something has changed. And I honestly think it may be related to that robbery, that great train robbery, which is COVID. I think I, I was listening to Peter Schiff the other day, and he seems like he's turned a corner in terms of the market really has been, the bubble has been popped, and it's just a matter of time now. And if that's true, then they're done with that level of the stealing, and they can let the society break down, start to happen. And it may be an order out of chaos situation, which I have postulated before. Which version of society collapse will it be? Will it be the one where everybody finds out that we've all been lied to and we will completely distrust the medical professional and the, and the government and the media and we will want to see Nuremberg too? And, uh, and, and very angrily, Klaus Schwab uh, said that we need to prepare for a very angry future, you know, where people are going to be very angry. And he's saying we got to prepare for anger. That's what he saw at the very beginning of the pandemic. The world is going to become very angry. We need to prepare for it. For Why? I mean, if they're prepared for it, then they want it. The best way for me to explain most of what's happened for the last two years, and it may not be true, but it's the thing that fits the best, is that they're trying to, A, get us to do something, trying to get somebody to do something stupid so they can use that to snowball the Reichstag fire sort of takeover of the false flag kind of situation. That's what I think, that they... They want us to rebel. They want us to lose faith in, in a complete forth-turning way, lose faith in all institutions so that they can destroy all institutions and bring in whatever they've got planned next. And it is my firm belief right now that whatever is coming next is the new world order uh, that the Antichrist will save us from. I'm thinking about writing a book called The Antichrist Will Save Us from the New World Order because it, it says almost in one sentence 
a lot of stuff that I think I, I think I chiefly feel burdened about to tell people. People are going to believe it's the end times because it's going to look a lot like the end times. And it won't have the stuff. It won't have the temple. It won't have the man sitting in it declaring himself to be God. It won't have a false prophet calling fire from heaven. But it will have all the other stuff that they know about with their brief reading about Bible prophecy. It'll have something that you can't buy or sell without that mark. And they'll make sure to put it on your right hand or forehead this time. And they'll have a, a leader and his name will add up to 666. Mark my words on that. I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking, I don't know if we can handle a deception like that. If, if Satan knew uh, that if he could just make us think that there was a end times before the end times, then he can be the guy riding in on the white horse, Revelation 6, and which he saves us from it and defeats them. And, and, and if, that, if, the, if the thing, and I'm not saying that what's coming is going to morph into the 10 king situation, but um, I think it might. And I think that's my consolation on the idea. You know, I'm always trying to tell people, look, it's not the end times. Everybody always thought it was the end times, but it's not this time. But I'm saying, okay, well, maybe this one will be the 10 kings. You know, I'm, I'm still sort of banking on uh, in, in a way, but it doesn't have to be that either. Anyway, now I am rambling. And I think I've said everything I wanted to say. So I, oh, I didn't say. One other thing I wanted to say. I've been thinking a lot about COVID stuff and vaccine stuff, and I've been doing some projects to set up some vaccine meme kind of things. And ultimately, I think that I'm going to shift my focus on a lot of that stuff because I think that that's something that the world is going to do just fine. All the people that are now injured from these vaccines or whatever, their lives are now, they've got, their lives are devoted to that. There's going to be, this is too huge for other people not to pick up that mantle. I, I still do it because I'm passionate about it and I follow it and I just can't help make a meme here and there about it. But I really want to focus my attention on uh, the gospel and Bible prophecy. I've got some gospel projects in the works and I'm extremely excited about making media and videos about uh, gospel presentations. You'll know it when you see it. I'll make sure you know. But I, I'm, it's going to be a multi-month project and a lot of uh, efforts going to be put into it. That's, I think, where I want to be. I also want to do more with Bible prophecy. Hence, send me your questions and different things, and that's a good place to start. So BibleProphecyArchive.com, that's what I mentioned earlier. BibleProphecyTalk.com is where you'll see the links to that uh, COVID protocol video I mentioned and some other things. So in that case, go to BibleProphecyTalk.com. And you can email me at ChrisWhite79 at ProtonMail.com. I normally... I'm very bad about answering e emails, but if you send questions about Bible prophecy, there's a very good chance I will uh, talk about it on air next time uh, or some podcast in the future. All right. Thanks. And we'll see you next time.